and everyone was just good to each other. Uh, that's what I remember from that time. We were, at that point, we were all Americans. Everyone loved America. Everyone loved New York City. Um, and we all loved each other. It didn't matter if you were, you know, if you were in blue, if you were, you know, it didn't matter what you were wearing, whether you were a cop, you were a firefighter. Um, it didn't matter whether you were just, you know, a, a citizen showing up to a precinct with water or with food. Um, it, every, we were all in it together. You're listening to the Black and Blue Podcast, a discussion and celebration of the roles of African Americans and other minorities in U.S. law enforcement. Your host on the Black and Blue Podcast is Dale Peters, a law enforcement professional with over 20 years experience in the business. Hop on board this Black and Blue train of interviews, current events, and pop culture conversations. So get ready. The Black and Blue Podcast is coming at you right now. Hey, Black and Blue fam, what's going on? Welcome to the Black and Blue Podcast, where we celebrate diversity in U.S. law enforcement. My name is Dale, and I'm the host. Thank you for stopping by for today's episode. Hey, I really appreciate it, but uh, let me ask you for a little bit more appreciation by asking you to click those like, subscribe, and bell icons right down here on my YouTube channel. And if you listen to me on your favorite podcast platform, make sure you rate the Black and Blue Podcast five stars. And finally, make sure you check me out on any one of my social media pages for even more content. You can find me everywhere at Black and Blue US. All right, so uh, with that down, let's get to it. My guest today, he is responsible for the drug enforcement and uh, operations in the Eight Mile, that being Detroit, Michigan. So Black and Blue fan, please help me welcome to the show DEA Special Agent in Charge of Detroit, Michigan, Orville Green. How you doing, sir? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you for, for coming on to the show today. And uh, we'll, we'll uh, talk about everything DEA related. All right. So, uh, yes, uh, today is uh, Monday, the day after the infamous um, uh, comeback <laughs> from, uh, from uh, the Niners yesterday. It hasn't been a good week for, for Detroit. You know, you got you lost uh, Harbaugh, and now yesterday's game with the with the Lions. How you feel about that? Well, uh, as a, a, a transplanted uh, Lions fan, um, it was it was a tough loss because you know after that first half, we thought we had it in the bag. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, I think looking at the fact that the Lions made it to you know, it was 32 years since they were last, uh, you know, in the postseason. So I, I think that's something to celebrate as well, right? We, yeah. you know, it, 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 uh, it's a tough place to be. They got there. I don't think we should take away the fact that it was a lot of hard work and determination and, and drive, and and obviously we have a winning team. So yeah. Yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there next year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, it, I'm a Niners fan, so I was I was all happy for it. I was. I was, uh, you know, <laughs> I was kind of scared there in the first half. Uh, they were putting it on them, but then they got away from what got them there in the, in the uh, first half. And but that's why they play four quarters, right? 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then, uh, like I said, uh, Michigan, at least University of Michigan, yeah, they uh, you know, they won the, the college national championship but uh, lost hardball to the NFL. So, you know. Kind of, kind of. Yeah, we'll, sweet. we'll take the win. <laughs> bittersweet. We'll yeah, take, bittersweet. we'll take all the wins. And I, and I'm another uh, opponent of Michigan of Detroit. I'm originally from Columbus, Ohio, so you know the Ohio State but University. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> um, so that was something I had I had to learn. So uh, you know, coming coming to uh, the Detroit Field Division um, and being responsible for Michigan and Ohio. You know, I go off oh. to Ohio in the wrong, wearing the wrong color tie, and 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 you know, it's it's pointed out by several individuals um, that I'm wearing the wrong colors. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so All I right, also so, uh, I know the I know the call and response oh. I know to respond io. So I uh, I, I'm learning some things. <laughs> All right, hey, so uh, hey, uh, thanks for being a good sport there. And uh, you said you were transplanted transplanted. Uh, uh, Detroiter. Where, where are you originally from? So I'm originally from Brooklyn, New York, um, by way of Jamaica, the island. Um, uh, my family, uh, we immigrated uh, 35 years ago. Nice, nice. So uh, do you get a chance to go back or to New York? Or no, Jamaica? I haven't. No, uh, no, not Jamaica, New York. Yes. Uh, on, on, on occasion. On occasion. Okay. Yes. All right. So let's talk about uh, DEA. How, how long have you been with the agency? So I've been with DEA uh, 21 years. Okay. Um, and uh, Yeah, prior, prior, to, prior to DEA, I started my law enforcement career with the New York City Police Department in um, March of 2000. So okay. uh, March of 2000. So you were there Yeah, you were there doing yes. 9-11 then. Yes, I was a cop during 9-11, yes. Yeah, what was that experience like? Well, from, um, you know, interestingly enough, so I was a rookie cop. I was, um, I didn't spend, I only spent about three years with the NYPD. But, you know, after uh, September 11, like you had to have seniority to make it down to the, to the, the trade center site, believe it or not, you know, at the time, you know, obviously no one knew the risks, um, you know, that were, that were, going to be associated or that were associated at the time with, with being at, 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 at uh, ground zero. So mostly I did, um, uh, some security, uh, some security posts around the, um, around the trade center. Um, each precinct, um, you know, had their own sensitive locations, which are mostly synagogues and mosques and, you know, a lot of security, uh, um, uh, 12, 16 hour security details, on those locations as well, as well as filling in, in the, uh, patrol cars, because, you know, the senior guys were, were all at the trade center or at some different site doing something, uh, you know, actually actively participating, um, in the recovery operation. Yeah, absolutely. But, uh, what was your experience like as a, as a human being, as a, as a person living and, and working in New York when, when that went down? I tell you, first of all, the most interesting thing was, um, you know, you couldn't get around the city unless you had unless you had a badge in your pocket. You know, that was the you literally had to tin your way all across the city. And and, you know, um, I remember driving. I was actually RDO that night and I remember driving back. I was visiting uh, my mom who was living in Pennsylvania at the time. And I remember driving back and 
you know, uh, 78 heading east back into New, back into New York City and um, going through the Holland Tunnel or going, going actually going across any one of the, the, um, the tunnels. I think I went across the, um, uh, going back into the city, I think I went across the um, Williamsburg Bridge after getting into, into Manhattan. And it was, there were no cars on, it was an eerie, eerie uh, feeling. There were no cars on the road. And I remember picking up in my own, in my private car, bringing people across nurses, across the bridge, getting people wow. to work because, you know, you weren't allowed on, unless you had an ID, an ID card, uh, the law enforcement ID card, the badge, you weren't getting across, you weren't getting across the city at all. But it was, I had never seen and haven't experienced since that level of fellowship, of camaraderie in New York City. You know, um, when you went into it, when, whenever you went into a, into a place to eat after, you know, being on a post for about, you know, 12, 14 hours, 16 hours, you know, three people would have offered to or at least tried to pay for your meal before you even got the check, you know, um, People were pro law enforcement. They were, you know, they were cheering for you as we were driving down the street. It was, and everyone was just good to each other. Uh, that's what I remember from that time. We were, at that point, we were all Americans. Everyone loved America. Everyone loved New York City. Um, and we all loved each other. It didn't matter if you were, you know, if you were in blue, if you were, you know, it didn't matter what you were wearing, whether you were a cop, you were a firefighter. Um, it didn't matter whether you were just, you know, uh, a, a citizen showing up to a precinct with water or with food. Um, it, every we were all in it together. Yeah, yep, yep. I remember that time well. Yep, absolutely. And uh, so you say you did three years there. What what made you want to join NYPD to begin with? Or law well, enforcement you know, um, you know, I, uh, honestly, I you know I didn't really I didn't think about a law uh, a career in law enforcement, and it was interesting how I got to uh to law enforcement and to nypd so my first job out of college i went to john jay college um at john jay college of criminal justice in in new york city and my first job out of college um was as a civilian investigator with the civilian complaint review board in new york city so this is the civilian body that's responsible for investigate investigating allegations of misconduct by new york city police officers so I spent my days at work interviewing complainants. These are folks who came in and had a complaint about something uh, a cop allegedly did to them. And, um, you know, so we would go out, normal investigation, you go out, you would interview, you'd go out to the scene, you would interview, um, you would look for uh, video, you would interview witnesses, um, you know, and ultimately you would interview the cops. Now, the majority of the cases I dealt with, um, you know, were missing some major facts uh, that the um, complainants would leave out, like the fact that you know you were, you know, you had just left the robbery scene when you encountered the cops, right, and that there was a legitimate reason. <laughs> yeah, you leave some yeah. stuff out. You know, you just left pulled it out. A, yeah, you just pulled a pistol on a guy when the cops jumped on you and uh, you know and cuffed you up, um, but. That I, I found the stories and some of the not necessarily pertaining specifically to the allegations that were made, but sort of the larger stories as to why that con that contact happened in the first place. 
were very interesting. And I thought, wow, the stories on that side of the table sound, you know, way more interesting. And it's something I'd be interested in. And I actually took the, I took the NYPD test um, the same, the weekend before I dropped my packet off to DEA in Manhattan. And so it took me a while to get through the DEA process because I was in the police academy. It was eight months long at the time. I went into the police academy uh, the Monday after the um, uh, the Diallo not guilty verdicts came out. And so oh, yeah. the so the class was now eight months long because they added uh, they added some uh, behavioral science component to it and um, that extended it out. So it was um, so that was that was how I got into law enforcement. It was actually as as a civilian investigator with the CCRB, and that was what really opened my eyes to to what was happening. Uh, what you know, cops uh, sort of what they went through and what they were dealing with, and sort of you know, I just I saw the excitement that was there, um, being able to do some different things, uh, and um, you know, as well as really serve my serve my community, which ultimately led me to DEA, which was something that I was able to continue doing on a much larger scale, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Now, going into that, uh, you know, we'll stick on this just for one more point. When you went into that civilian position, did you go into it thinking that, you know, you had some sort of axe, not not necessarily an axe to grind, but you wanted to to kind of show law enforcement's failings or or kind of give voice to to the voiceless sort of thing or? No, you sort of, you know, you go in um, without that experience, without, um, you know, you go in with your own biases, right? And you think it's a certain way, and then you realize, wow, it's not. Like, okay, these people are mm-hmm. regular human beings with the same problems, right? Same frustrations. Um, and I think getting that bit of insight, I saw you know, the opportunity, I saw the possibility of me being able to do more, um, for my, for my community. And, you know, I was, I was a cop in Brooklyn. I lived in Brooklyn, you know, I was a cop in Brooklyn. So that for me was, uh, it was, it was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and my uh, friends and my friends lived in the neighborhood that I, uh, that I, that I patrolled. So it was, it was great. Yeah. I love New York. Me and the family went there a couple of years ago. Uh, for the second time, and and there's always something new to, to see every time you're there. I I, I love New York. Absolutely. Definitely, definitely, yeah. Yep. So you did only you did three years there, and then you obviously left, and you went to DEA. Was was DEA your first federal choice, or did you kind of like shotgun blast all the agencies? And um, no. So it was actually it was no. I I did send a um. I sent in my resume and transcript uh, to the CIA as well, and it was—I don't know why I didn't keep this letter. It was great. I got this—I got this um, letter back in the mail, no return address, and they very politely—and um, and I'm, I'm I'm paraphrasing here. Thank you for your interest, but never contact us again. <laughs> I should have—I should have kept that letter. Um, but other yeah. than that, and then uh, DEA—that was it. I didn't really. No, I didn't do the usual ATF, um, ICE at the time, FBI. No, DEA was it. Because what, I what really. What interested you? Yeah, what interested you about you know, DEA? I, so it was, um, it was, I was at a, uh, I was at a college fair um, at John Jay. It was a job fair at, at John Jay. I remember I met the recruiter and the, re- the recruiter was, uh, was a black agent. Um, and he really sold me on DEA. Um, he really sold me on DEA. 
uh, Carl Bell was his name. Uh, he's retired now, but Carl was Carl was the the person I met at that at that career fair, and he really sold me. And I think also I got an opportunity to see you know another person of color in this job, um, and and I, I don't know maybe that made a difference for me. Yeah, but yeah. it was but he really sold it, and you know uh, like I try to sell it every day to everyone. It's the greatest job in the world. Now being at NYPD, I said the same thing, and that was a very very cool job. So for me to look out and find something even cooler than that was um, was just exciting for me, and, and, and I'm very fortunate. Yeah, yeah. So so let's talk about DEA. What uh, what is the responsibility of the DEA? So um, where I am now versus where I was in New York, okay, uh, completely different, right? In New York, you know, I was a working agent, um, making cases, arresting people, doing surveillance. Um, testifying in court, uh, all of that exciting stuff. And, um, you know, as I rose through the ranks and um, what I do now, I guess we'll kind of bounce around a little bit, but, you know, I started in New York. I spent a total of uh, 14 years in New York with DEA, you know, as a working agent and also as a, um, as a group supervisor. And then um, from, from New York after uh, six years as a, as a, as a, a field supervisor, I transferred to um, to headquarters to start my headquarters rotation. And my first stop was uh, the Special Operations Division. There I was there for about uh, maybe a little over 18 months and then promoted into um, our headquarters um, headquarters building proper, which is in, um, in, in uh, Arlington. So I promoted to um, the equivalent of an assistant special agent in charge. Um, but there, for some reason, we have different titles in headquarters uh, than we do for the same for the same rank than we do in the field. So I was a section chief. So I was the section chief of the regional local impact section. So pretty much all domestic operations, I had um, I had a hand in supporting at the headquarters level when I was at uh, when I was at uh, the special operations division. I supported. I supported. Uh, I was in the um, the, um, uh, gang section. And so I supported, so still it was all domestic. My focus, my entire career has been, uh, domestic. Uh, so once in headquarters, I was, um, I was now, you know, I had visibility on all the domestic operations in terms of supporting, uh, those operations, um, from the headquarters level, which was usually, um, financial because I had a budget. Uh, so if you were working a fentanyl case in Arkansas, you know, you'd reach out, you'd reach out to me and say, Hey, Orville, uh, you know, I need, I need X amount of dollars to do this by, um, you know, and, and my job also was to make sure that you were utilizing other resources. So I was essentially a choke point to make sure you were utilizing other resources in the agency and, and coordinating and deconflicting in, in, um, in, in a manner that really continued to, to, um, not just uh, exemplify what is we're supposed to do, but also to follow all the protocols. And um, I was there for about two years, and then I lateral out to um, the Baltimore District Office. So I was the assistant special agent in charge now of the Baltimore District Office, which was pretty cool because Baltimore is a standalone office. So I was the guy. I was in charge. Uh, my boss sat in D.C. and had to make an appointment to come see me. So that was a pretty good setup. And nice, then from nice. – uh, so from – I got to Baltimore – um, about a month before COVID and, um, okay. and, uh, got promoted 
got promoted in April of uh, 2022 to uh, to come to Detroit and uh, lead the Detroit uh, field division. So here in Detroit, I am responsible for all um, for all enforcement and regulatory because we have diversion as well. So we have the diversion program um, as well as the agent program. Um, so our diversion folks are responsible for the regulatory side of the house. So I'm responsible um, for the law, for the enforcement and regulatory operations in um, Michigan, Ohio, and uh, uh, small and a couple of counties in Northern Kentucky. Okay. Yeah. So diversion meaning, um, so like uh, pharmacies and prescription source. Stuff? Yes. Yes. The pharmaceutical. Yeah. So we're all, all of the, all of that side of the house. Um, so our diversion investigators go out and they, they do audits, they do inspections of pharmacies, of doctor's offices that to make sure that they're in compliance. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's, there's, you know, a lot of abuse and prescription abuse that I'm sure that we've all heard about, uh, you know, going around. So um, they handle that. And then say like, if they see something criminal going on, do they kind of refer it to the, to the criminal side, to the enforcement side, or how's that well, work? Yes, we we also so we also have um, uh, tactical uh, diversion squads. So these are um, mm-hmm. these are law enforcement folks, so agents and TFOs, um, as well as diversion investigators that working in work in those groups. And so they usually do the um, you know the doctors who are um, you know who are selling scripts or pharmacies that are filling scripts. So once it hits the criminal, um, although our diversion people can do criminal cases as well. But generally, those go over to the um, the TDS groups. Very great. And DEA is the head, the lead agency in in charge of drug enforcement in in the nation, or is it kind of kind of co with with the other three letter agency? Well, co with you know FBI. So you know our yeah. authority, our authority is Title Twenty One, right? Which is you know we enforce the federal narcotics laws. Um, FBI also has, um, title 21 authority and we've delegated title 20, we being DEA, the, uh, um, uh, the administrator has delegated title 21 authority to HSI as well. So there, there are uh, quite a few of us in that space federally. Um, you know, then you factor in our, our state and local partners that we all work with. Um, so it's, yeah, it's quite a few of us in that space. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, you know, going back to when you said you, you first, <clears throat> excuse me, when you first got into DEA and you were in New York for a number of years, is, is that kind of uh, standard practice where, cause, cause I've heard different where um, a lot of people, at least in, in, in uh, DEA and, and HSI, uh, you can't go back to where you, where you lived as your first assignment, or is that obviously not true because you, you worked in New York and you lived there first. Well, well, what, and, and when I went, so when I went to Quantico in November of, of, of 2002, um, I was fairly, I was pretty certain I was not going back to New York because having uh, been a cop in New York, I was told these are the rules. You're, you're, you're not going back to New York. So I was concerned I was going to end up on the border somewhere, um, you know, for, for a hot minute. That was my, that was my big concern. Although, you know, I, 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 I spent three years at Fort Bliss. I was active duty in the army been three years at Fort Bliss. Um, and so, you know, so for me, I, I could have gone back to El Paso. That would have been fine for me. But um, at that time, you didn't, we, like, we didn't get our assignments until about maybe two or four weeks out from graduation is when you would get your assignment. 
And so when the list came out, uh, there were three spots in New York. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, it was myself and another um, agent from New York. And there were three spots and there were four people interested in, 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 in going to New York. So in typical New York fashion, we sat down with the four guys, me and the other guy from Queens. We said, listen, there are three spots, four of us. You know, Orville and I are taking two spots. You guys figure out who gets the third. But typical New York fashion, we just did that. Um, <laughs> and so I was able, so I was able to come back. I was able to go back home. So that was that was great for me because you know how it is when you're a cop from a you know you've been a police officer in in in, in a place. You know you've you know you've got your contacts. You know the terrain. Um, and so for me, it was it was exciting. Although I did have to get to know some different boroughs. Is when you're in New York, you know, back then you're from Brooklyn, you're from Brooklyn, you don't care to go yeah. to Manhattan, you don't care, you're definitely not going to the Bronx. It's just geographically, it's just too far. You know, you're not getting on, yeah, you're not getting on two or three trains, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no doubt, no doubt. Did, did they have some sort of, well, I guess they didn't have a wish list system. The, the agency I was with, uh, right before graduation, they have a wish list and, you know, uh, sort of thing you, you rank them one to three and then you know hopefully yes yes it choice. was yeah it, it, it was the, it was the same thing it was the same thing but it was you know um you know most people had an idea of where they wanted to go and that was it or whether they wanted to go back home now the process is a little different now before you know when the, the new agents sort of get to pick where they're going before um they even get to the academy you know so by the yes. time you accept that that offer you know, okay, you know, you're going back to LA, right? Um, and uh, that was a, a part of us being more competitive because the other agencies had been doing that for some time. Yes, yes. That's yeah, now that I look back and remember, yes, my offer was in the LA division uh, when I was with IRS. So that was, you know, they tell you right then and there. And then you, I don't know if, if I could have uh, negotiated going somewhere else. I don't know, but, you know, I was, I'm from LA. So I was like, okay, I'm, you know, cool. I'm good with it. So, yeah, yeah. I guess they had to kind of compete. Is is there is there a? I know you said that you had to go back to headquarters for a headquarters stint, and you know that's part of the process of promoting so that you can learn the the operations of the of the agency. How's that How's that work? Yes, that's how it works. So the you know the idea is that you go back to headquarters, and um, you know that's that's where you're supposed to learn how the sausage is made, right? Um, I ended up in a great section. And for me, it was it was a great experience when I when I left the special operations division where, you know, you were still sort of engaged in um, in field operations and supporting investigations. And that was still familiar when I promoted into the into um, uh, headquarters building, you know, to a to um, a GS-15. That was where I was now doing different things. You know, I was I had. Um, I had at least several times of uh, several times um, a, a month. I would, you know, I would be at DOJ, sitting in a, um, you know, sitting in, in meetings with the Deputy Attorney General when it was it was Rod Rosenstein at the time, you know, and um, you know, here I am in these rooms, and you know, I'm, you know, I'm this immigrant kid from, you know, from Brooklyn now, and um, you know, here I am, and I'm in the room with, you know. Uh, people who are actually have real responsibilities and they're talking about, you know, important things. And I'm like, wow. And I'm in this room sort of, and what that was for me was getting that exposure and getting the opportunity to, you're really learning how to sit at the grown up table, you know? So every, every step along the way, you sort of, it's preparing you for the next thing. 
you know, um, so that that for me was a great experience. And that's what that's a part of um, our process with the promote with the once you promote to a first line supervisor, which is uh, GS 14. So you go to a group supervisor. And after a certain amount of years, you know, I spent six years, you know, uh, as a group supervisor in New York, which, you know, was, uh, in my opinion, way too long. Um, but it's the process now somewhere around four, around four years um, at the earliest you can you can punch and go to uh, go to headquarters, which I think is a much better time frame. Nice, nice. And then DEA has operations worldwide. What what's that kind of process? Is is anyone ever forced to go so, overseas or? Excuse me a second. Yeah. No. So on the um, on the overseas the overseas assignments. Um, you know, uh, folks choose to go overseas. We, we put in for, um, we put in for, for availability for jobs that are, that are available or open and we still have, and we compete for them. So, you know, no one ever really, no one gets drafted to, to go overseas. We do have a mobility agreement that we all sign, you know, so I could be in Detroit, Detroit today. And, you know, tomorrow I'm in, uh, you know, I'm in New York, you know, yeah. as the administrator, you know, called me up and go, hey, Orville, this is where I see you supporting the mission. And, you know, I say, yes, ma'am, and um, you move on. Yep. And we go and get so, it so, done. Yep, so that's one thing about uh, federal service. Uh, how do you find, I don't know uh, what your family life is like. Um, is it conducive to family life? Because you, you do have that mobility. So, yes, I, I am I am, I am am married. Um, uh, my wife and I, we have uh, we have one daughter. She's seven years old. Uh, my wife is also an agent, so um, it, it, it works. Um, I have three kids from my uh, from my first marriage, um, and you know they're all adults for the most part. Now they're you know they're adults, so it's a whole different dynamic. But in terms of my wife and my seven year old, you know she's used to I think she sort of understands the whole thing. We were in you know she was old enough. We we're in Virginia when we moved and. She did not want to come to Michigan, and after being in Michigan for almost two years, she does not want to leave Michigan. So you know, it's, yeah. I don't know if we'll, I don't know if we'll ever be able to please the kid, but um, but it's um, you know, it's uh, at this point in our career, my wife has already completed her headquarters store. So you know, wherever we go, it, it's going to be um, you know, by choice, not because we're we're so we're mandated by agency protocol. Now, would the agency ever break up the family? You know what? Interesting enough, generally they work to keep you together, even with me having the rank that I have and my wife, um, you know, if she goes somewhere else it's because she promotes, which would put her at the GS-15 level. Um, and interestingly enough, with not just the DOJ components, but, you know, pretty much all of the agencies to include the military, um, they work to keep the families together. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, kids are resilient. So, you know, sometimes it's, it's tough to, you know, go from place to place, but when you look back at it and you have all these different experiences, I'm sure she'll appreciate that when she gets older. Oh yeah. We got here. She was starting first grade. I don't think it would have been impossible for her transition to first grade, not to be good, no matter where we were, you know, apparently first grade (laughs) is like starting college. I did not know this, but it's, it's first grade and then there's college. You know, yeah, maybe yeah. high school somewhere in there, but then college. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Did uh, any of the other kids want to follow on dad's footsteps and, and be in law enforcement? Um, No, 
No, no, I don't think they. Uh, not really. You know, I, I don't. I don't think so. None of them have, have expressed that interest. Yeah, I mean, they they saw it from the inside, like you say. You know how the sausage is made. They saw you know a lot of the late nights, right? Yeah, and I don't think if I don't think it it it, um, it would necessarily from their vantage point at the time. I don't think it would have been something appealing. You know, yeah. now my 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 seven year old. You know, I'm at a different stage in my career. Um, you know, my wife still goes out and hits doors, you know, while I'm taking her to the bus in the morning. You know, I remember one morning she said to me, um, you know, I said, hey, um, so, you know, whatever about mommy is going to pick you up because dad had to, you know, mommy had to go out and um, you just say mommy had to go out and get bad guys. And then she uh, she asks me, well, so I know what mommy does. So what did you do? So, you know, I, I started to ex explain to her my administratively fill the day of signing stuff and phone calls and meetings. And the kid turns around and looks at me and she goes, you don't do too much. <laughs> to which I explained to her that yeah. all of this happens only because I allow it to happen. But she didn't really care for that. You know, nah, I wasn't arresting bad right, guys, yeah. so she didn't care. Yeah, yeah so in right. our house, mommy, mommy is the hero. She knows I'm in charge, but mommy is the real hero. That, that that's awesome yeah yeah <laughs> that is awesome so uh you know you've had a, a long and fruitful career with uh with dea kind of talk about uh you know some of your rewards you know the rewarding part of being in the dea i know uh you know right now a, a big one is uh you know fentanyl and you guys everyone's trying to get a handle on that what, what's kind of the rewards of being a dea agent well, I, I will tell you, so, you know, as, as a working agent, um, you know, you have so much autonomy as a DEA agent. You know, for me, I was back in New York City. You know, I grew up in Brooklyn. I love the city. And, you know, when I, when I immigrated back in, in 1988 with, uh, with, with, with my family, you know, we weren't exactly, you know, we weren't living in a gated community. We were living in, um, you know, we were living in Brooklyn. It was the height of the crack epidemic. You know, I went to what was billed at the time, you know, the third worst high school in Brooklyn, which is uh, Erasmus Hall High School, you know, but it was billed as uh, it was top three worst high schools in Brooklyn. Um, you know, so when I got to DEA and, you know, after leaving the NYPD, which interesting enough, when I became a cop, you know, and I was in the police academy. I remember, and you probably have, the, you know, a, sort of a, um, a similar reference point. I remember thinking, man, when I get out of the academy, I'm shutting the whole city down. <laughs> that was my thought, shutting it all yep. down. And then uh, someone pointed out, like, hey, you know, um, you're going to go to a borough, right? So I'm like, okay, all right, okay, I'm going to Brooklyn. Like, I'm shutting all of Brooklyn down. You know, like, hey, within that borough, you're going to go to a precinct. <laughs> so I ended up in, in the 78 precinct in Park Slope, uh, way before, which is which ends, uh, or used to end at that time anyway, right before you get to the Barclays Center going downtown. That was back when, where the Barclays Center is now, it was just a hole in the ground. You know, so I figured, okay, I'm shutting the whole 7-8 down. And then it was explained to me, okay, so within your precinct, you're going to be assigned to a sector, Right. If you're lucky, once you get in the car, you're in a sector. So I go, okay, my sector, Adam Boy Charlie. Oh, I'm shutting Adam Boy Charlie down. They go, okay, it's kind of a big sector. So a friend of mine, I told you previously, a friend of mine, um, she lived in uh, she lived in, in Park Slope. 
I think she was on, she lived on 14th Street and 5th Avenue. So ultimately what happened, the intersection of 14th Street and 5th Avenue, that was what I was able to shut down. So recognizing, you know, what the scope was and what the reality of what you're able to do is, you know, as a cop, when I got to DEA and I realized that, you know, I was then not only limited to my imagination, you know, I went to neighborhoods like the one I grew up in and, you know, at and looked at um, sort of looked at those communities through the lens of someone who had no power and who could do nothing about you know, about the violence, right? About the drug trafficking, you know, the drug dealing happening on the corners and, you know, and the things that kids have to walk through. And so my focus, I never really had a focus on seizing a bunch of kilos. It was just not, they did, you know, granted that took a lot of skill. It took a lot of skill. And, and the guys who I know who were really, really good at that are very, very uh, smart agents and very good agents. The appeal for me was to have an impact um, locally in the places where, you know, you know, where I grew up, where my friends, my family um, all moved around. That was what I wanted to do. And, you know, one, the, you know, I've, I've done a bunch of different cases, but one of the cases I'm most proud of was um, it was uh, uh, Gerard and 167 in the Bronx was a well-known crack spot back in the day, well-known. And, okay. you know, and um, had arrested a guy and this guy gave us a lead that, hey, you know, he was trying to work, right? He's trying to cooperate. And says, hey, you know, I, I, I know something about a murder. And, you know, this person gave up this homicide and we literally, my partner and I, my partner Joe Coletta and I, we started working that case from buying just bags of crack we started working that case to get us back into charging that homicide. You know, we ended up, um, we ended up um, identifying the other two shooters. There were three shooters that day. One got arrested the very next day and was doing 16 years in prison. Um, he did 16 years uh, up at Sing Sing and, or the majority of the time at Sing Sing. And one guy was one, the other shooter was in Florida and one guy was still there in the Bronx running that block. And we started from just doing street buys to, um, you know, arresting that whole crew on Gerard and actually two of the sources, the cocaine sources um, that were um, that were serving those guys. So we ended up locking everybody up. The, the, the other two, the other two shooters dismantling that whole organization in that um, in that area. And the homicide was a drug related homicide that actually occurred the year I graduated high school. It's probably, I think I was probably a freshman in college when that, when that happened. Um, oh, wow. And we were able to, we were able to in, indict that homicide, you know, um, charge uh, all the other players, including the sources in that case. Um, and that for me and, you know, my partner and I, we would go up to the Bronx, man, for weeks and the block was dead. That whole neighborhood, man, was just dead. And we knew it wasn't going to last, but that was probably, um, one of the things I, I think, looking back, one of, one of the things that I think was my biggest accomplishment, um, um, you know, as far as as far as being an agent, you know, yeah. uh, another another big reward was um, a couple of guys in my group had this one case going, and um, you know, so I'm I'm fluent in in Jamaican patois. I speak it. I understand it. And okay. we were we were up on the phone. <clears throat> we were up on the phone, and. You know, his call comes over and it was clear. You, you had a, yeah, you had a wire after, on the phone. 
a wire, wire yes we were at wire on the phone we were intercepting the phone and you know this guy comes over you know real cryptic like you know he he had to get out of town and he was calling our our, our uh, target who the guy whose phone we were listening to he was calling this guy to help him get out of town so we very quickly reached out to um uh it was bridgeport connecticut very quickly reached out to Bridgeport, like, hey, did something happen? It was like, yeah, there was a homicide, and we we're looking for this guy. So we actually initially, because again, it wasn't my case. I just happened to be the native speaker who was in the group, and you know, we all, you know, how we all support each other's cases. And so we passed all the guys passed all of the information to the to the marshals or some fugitive team to grab this guy, and we were feeding them feeding them info. The next day, which is when he was supposed to move, um, our guy was supposed to go get him. We intercept another call, and the guy says, hey, you know, I am almost there. So we quickly realized, wow, <clears throat> this guy got a ride from Connecticut. He is in the Bronx, and at this point, he was going to hit Brooklyn and disappear. So we get up to the Bronx. We grab this guy, and... Um, you know, during the encounter, he might have, because I was speaking in uh, Jamaican Patois to him, he might have thought this was retribution and he was about to be murdered. I tell you, once this guy realized, oh, and at the time, so, you know, my uh, my uh, my government vehicle at the time was a um, was a tinted out uh, uh, Mercedes C320 with uh, 18 inch chrome wheels. So nothing about that <laughs> car said <laughs> police. Yeah. So at the no, time no. we take this guy off the set, you know, um, gave him a couple of Newports, read him his Miranda rights. You know, he was smoking two Newports. I've never seen this before. He was smoking two Newports at the same time. And, you know, Mirandized him and said, hey, man, you know, why, you know, what's going on? You okay? And, man, he gave up just enough about that homicide in Connecticut that six months later, you know, I'm in, I'm in, uh, I'm in uh, uh, court with in front of the state's attorney. You know, testifying in this trial, not to anything other than the little bit of information this guy had given me, which was which fit perfectly into the rest of the puzzle that I had no idea about. You know, that guy ended up getting um, that guy ended up getting about 50 years. Is um, wow. uh, the state had, he had beat the state on a previous double homicide that he committed. And they deported him, and he came right back and then murdered this other guy. So it was a big win for um, you know for uh, the state's attorney in in, uh, in in Bridgeport, and and that was you know again that was a really bad guy that I was able to help get off the street, even though I had nothing else to do with the case other than I was I was the native speaker sitting there and understood what this guy was saying. Hey, you utilize yeah. your resources and and all your skills. Yeah. <clears throat> so yeah, you fast absolutely. so you fast forward now to finish answering the question. You fast forward now to what I do now, right? And, you know, what I do now in this space, I'm not out doing anything that fun, much fun anymore. But, you know, but I am, a, um, you know, you talk about the, the fentanyl, you know, the fentanyl issue and the fentanyl crisis that we're now experiencing. And so now I get to do things like um, coordinate our regional family summits, you know, covering Michigan and Ohio. You know, we have our, our, our opioid family summits, and this is where we bring families in we bring resources in um for a day of um really presentations and 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 coordination and meeting and offering resources to folks who've lost uh loved ones to uh to a fentanyl poisoning 
or other uh, drug overdose. And we bring resources to them and we really give them an outlet, give them, um, you know, we bring like people together who, interestingly enough, have never, would have never found these resources in the time frame that they were able to, if not for, you know, the DEA Family Summit. So, you know, that's where, you know, giving back to the community, helping the community, um, going to these different events and presenting at these different events, uh, talking to folks about the dangers of of uh, fentanyl, you know, that one pill can kill, um, you know, um, uh, being a part of these town halls. And, and, you know, I do a lot more, I guess it would be more on the social work side than I do on the law enforcement yeah. side and law enforcement side at this point. But that's where I am in my career. And those are the things that, you know, I, I think I, I should be doing and I'm expected to do uh, at this point, you know, advocating for the agency that I love so much, DEA, and and really engaging with the community um, and bringing resources and trying to educate the community as, as much as we can, you know, um, yeah. you know, uh, we won't be able to arrest our way out of a way out of the situation that I find that we find ourselves in, you know, and, and I think, um, you know, 20 plus years later, our approach has to be different. You know, um, it has to be different. Yeah. Yeah. Now the, you know, there's a difference between, you know, federal government and state and local government. How, how does, what's the DEA's philosophies and, and, and uh, how, how do they go about when they go to certain uh, states or cities or lo- jurisdictions where a, a certain, say like marijuana is legal, but it's not legal on the federal side. What, how does that affect what, what the DEA does in those jurisdictions? Well, you know, uh, the key point being that it's it, it's not legal federally. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think it's it's been a long time since we've, you know, we've, we've done some of these uh, marijuana cases where, you know, you're talking about less than like, you know, a, a few hundred to a few thousand pounds, you know, because you still have to remember that, you know, even in the places where, you know, California, again, being one of them, um, you know, um, the... Uh, amount of marijuana in California where it's legal, for example, in other places where it's legal, that comes from the illicit market, I think is staggering. And most people wouldn't even believe that number if they heard it, you know. Um, so there is still a space for us to operate in where we can where we can still address the marijuana issue without, um, I think, w- w- without sort of stepping on what the states are trying to do. Um, okay. you know, in uh, terms, in terms of their, in terms of, um, you know, um, their processes, but it's still illegal federally, you know, so we still have an obligation and we still have the authority to, to conduct those operations, though it really, it's, it's not a whole lot of them, you know, but yeah, I think yeah. we get into that space where it's necessary for us to do so because of the criminal element. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. And we talked about earlier about some of the rewards of being a DEA agent. How about on the flip side? What, what are some of the more challenging things that you had to experience as a DEA agent in your career? Well, um, I'd say uh, for me, uh, I think one of the things I didn't pay attention to and that I, I talk to uh, new agents about now, you know, I just met a, a gentleman this morning. He's um, going to go into the Academy of Quantico in, in two weeks, you know, and I expressed to him the importance of family. You know, family is extremely important and you have to, you have to be deliberate about 
um, taking care of your family and giving your family the attention that, that they require. Um, you know, this idea that you'll somehow be able to, to balance work and home, it's, it's ridiculous. It's never going to happen. You know, so as you're doing well at work, you know, home is suffering because you're neglecting home. And if you're, if things are great at home, then work is suffering because you're neglecting work. So the idea is to sort of, this is how you balance them, right? You know, they're never going to be in equilibrium, but you keep them going. Um, you know, you sort of, you, you take time to, to, to address one and then the other. Um, so that's, that's, um, a, a tough side of it. You know, it's, you know, the stress that, that comes with, you know, just being in law enforcement. I think people are seeing different things out there than I saw as, you know, as a young agent, I think with the, um, with the number of overdoses we see, and we have, for example, we have, um, an overdose response team in, um, in uh, Cincinnati, um, and we've got a couple uh, throughout the division. And, you know, and these folks are going out and they're getting call-outs. They're going out to scenes where, you know, uh, people have uh, people have overdosed or, or been poisoned. You know, the families are notified. The families are there, and you're dealing with these kinds of situations. It's, you know, it's like, it's like pretty much everyone has now become a homicide detective. Um, right. And it's... It's something that I know is, is sort of present today that I didn't have to deal with as, as a working agent. But, you know, the hours, um, the time away from family, um, that was some of the downsides. Sometimes you, you know, you execute these search warrants and you go into places and you, it, where there are little kids living. You know, you see children living in, in, in some of these um, situations. And it, 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 I, I tell you, it upsets you. It, it depresses you. You know, my, my tour in Baltimore, I, I first get to Baltimore and, you know, I, I'm not from Baltimore, so I want to do my little ride along, kind of see what, you know, see uh, my terrain, right? See what I'm responsible for. And that was probably one of the most depressing rides I've ever taken. It was it, to see, you know, just not just the the, the, the poverty, but to see grown men, working age men who should either be in, you know, in school or a a work program or work, just hanging out on the corner, hanging out on the street, you know, at, you know, at, you know, 10 in the morning, 11 in the morning, you know, two in the afternoon, you know, and, and watching, you know, um, watching them not off, watching the young men not off, watching the old men not off, and then watching, you know, the 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 people who look like those people contributing to um to uh the detriment of that community that was it was yeah it was something that was that was that was hard to see it was something that was you know and also with the violence that was um the violence that's there just the unnecessary you know just over the top sort of movie type violence that takes place in a place like that it's you know it's it's really it's really concerning and you feel as if as much as you do, you can't seem to do enough. Right. You know, I, I will tell you an interesting thing, you know, sort of um, going to Baltimore. I, I was, you know, I, I wasn't, I wasn't the first um, black, uh, you know, uh, assistant special agent in charge to run that office, you know, but somehow I had it in my mind that I'm going to show up. They're going to be like, Oh yeah, black guy. And there were going to be people chasing me down saying, what are you doing for us? holding me accountable, you know, um, 
wanting to know what were my plans, what were my ideas, what was what was the DEA planning to do to help the people in Baltimore? And I got to tell you, if I didn't have an interest in, in in putting in the work and doing a good job, I could have shown up and or not show up at all, and no one would have even known, and no one would have even cared. Which was wow. just which was the biggest one of the biggest concerns to me was like, hey, no one. You know, again, I'm a public servant, right? You know, I mean, I'm here in Detroit now, and you know, if people want to see me and they and they want me to, you know, want me to show up and and tell them what I'm doing for them, that's my job. That's what I'm supposed to do. But it's amazing how many people don't hold the folks who are in charge accountable for what they're supposed to be doing for them. It, it's amazing to me, and and you know, that's something I, I hope you know, folks understand and sort of are a little bit more, a uh, little, little better with, yeah. you know, yeah. you know, holding us accountable. Absolutely. And uh, it's a good thing you, you, you mentioned you being a black man as the ASAC over there when you were in Baltimore and this being a black and blue podcast. Uh, let, let's talk about kind of diversity in the agency. What, what What's it look like? Uh, you know, you're the SAC. What about the above you and, and, and other positions of leadership? Uh, what What's the diversity look like? Are, are there positions for people of color? So, yes, there is. You know, I, I, I strongly I strongly believe that, um, you know, it, it's it's not a whole it's not a lot of us to begin with in terms of, um, you know, people of color. Right. Including Hispanics would include women, you know, um, um, it, it's it's really not a lot. Um, so as the um, sack of the Detroit division, right, um, I want us to get the best people, you know, but we also have to go to the places where we're going to find the best people, right? So, you know, if, if, if what we want to do is, and of course, you want to see more diversity, you want to see people of color, right? You want to see people of color, you want to see more women, um, you want to see more Hispanic women, more Hispanic males, more black males, um, you know, because that diversity is important. Diversity of thought is important. You know, yes. being, you know, being a black immigrant from the Caribbean, you know, who's again, you know, I'm just happy to be in this country. You know, I'm happy to be here. Thank you all for taking me in. I, I appreciate it. And I have, um, and I've shown my appreciation by enlisting in the army when I had a green card in my pocket. Because, you know, that was my way of, in my mind, I thought, I am paying my debt, you know, and then I, I really then, you know, sort of fell into uh, public service after that, you know, but I think that diversity is important because, you know, you and I are both black, the way you think about uh, things is not necessarily the same way that I think about it. My perspective is different, you know, because I think of, 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 of my journey, you know, it's, it's completely different. So I think even just having, you know, a, a, a black immigrant, you know, in a room having a conversation with a black American, you've you've got diversity there as well. Others yeah. may not see it, but you know, you know, from what we eat to the way we think, there's a whole lot of diversity there. So I think it's extremely important. Um, I think there is room for it. Um, I think one of the challenges, though, is that you know, as you know, you know, being a federal agent, it's it's a very competitive job. Um, it's a very competitive process to get the job. And I think the people, um, some of the people are thinking back to my friends that I know who would have been awesome at this because they're so qualified, have other options 
and have better paying options. So, you know, law enforcement is, it's like, we don't get into it to be rich. You know, if we, if we play our cards right, we make the right decisions, we'll be comfortable to very comfortable. But, you know, um, I, I just think it's, the, and I think across the board, the people who we could attract, we don't because they could be doing better somewhere else. And unless they have that calling, they're not, they're not going to invest in this in what we do. Yeah. Yeah. That part, that part right there. So, uh, you know, you did mention it's a very competitive job and, and law enforcement, I, I don't know about on the federal level anymore. Uh, if it's suffering from uh, lack of applicants wanting to be in law enforcement nowadays. So, so here, here's your chance. Sell, sell the DEA over the other three letter agencies over HSI, over FBI and secret service and the marshals and all that. Well, I'll tell you what, you know, on day one, once you leave that Academy, you are an agent. I've already said it's the greatest job in the world. It absolutely is the greatest job in the world. Uh, a job where you're limited only by your own imagination. You know, you could, I had a conversation with, um, with this, uh, young man this morning. Um, you know, he's a uh, prior law enforcement and he's going out to Quantico and he comes back, he's going to be in uh, Toledo. And I said to him, you can be sitting in Toledo, you know, working a case with your goal being to arrest some, you know, drug millionaire in Mexico, right. Or some guy in Colombia. You know, the, you know, just the ego it takes for you to even think about, you know, you're sitting in your little government office in Toledo thinking you're going to go get some multimillionaire, you know, in Colombia or in Mexico and charge them as a part of your investigation. But that's absolutely a reality uh, with the DEA. From day one, you, you know, it, it's, it's grown up rules, right? You're, you're your case agent. You're learning but everyone expects you to contribute to bring something to the table. You know, um, Secret Service, I think you're chasing bad checks for, you know, a couple of years before you end up on the detail anywhere. You know, FBI, they have some different assignments. Um, you know, for us, it's cradle to the grave. You're, you know, you're the surveillance agent. You know, <clears throat> you're, you're the, the tactical uh, guy. You know, you're, you're writing your own reports. You know, you have a team around you, but the bulk of the responsibility is on you as, as the agent. It's you're going to have a grand you're going to have a grand, grand time. And in all that fun that you're having, you're actually contributing to making our communities better, making our, our, our cities, our country and making this world a safer place. Because your reach is anywhere where we have a cooperative relationship with that government and in the places where we don't. There's some other tools too to get to, to, to get them within your reach. So yes, it's and you and you and you as a brand new agent, you could be doing that. You could absolutely be doing that. Yeah. yeah. And uh, another good thing about DEA is it's one of the few uh, federal agencies that you know really works closely hand in hand with local agencies. Uh, you know, maybe yes. uh, you know the marshals a little bit with you know the fugitive task forces, but you know, all the DEA task forces out there. Um, you know, I've been on a few of them in my, in my careers and, uh, yeah, there's one of the few. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Ab yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. All right. Uh, special agent green this, uh, I really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing the knowledge and, and really touting the, yep. the, the, <laughs> the DEA to the fullest. Yeah. How about, how about some words of wisdom before I get you out of here for, for anybody aspiring to be in law enforcement in general? 
Well, I, I got to tell you, you know, you, you've got to, you've got to, um, you know, uh, believe in yourself, believe you can do it, um, believe you have something to offer, um, you know, and, and just, just stay, stay with that dream. Stay with that dream. Like your, your perspective matters. Like you matter. Um, you know, we all can't stand on the outside and complain about what's happening if, if we're not on the inside to make that change. And I never thought I would be here, but, you know, here I am. You know, 35 years ago, I was a kid running around in Jamaica, you know, um, and, and, and here I am, um, you know, as a part of the senior executive service, you know, of, of the, the federal government of the United States. You know, that is the American dream. It's still here. It can still happen. Um, but you've got to stay, stay true and stay true to who you are when you get there. You know, when you get there, it's not time to switch up. Don't switch up. You know, stay true to who you are and, and continue to believe in yourself. But you, your opinion, you, you matter. It does matter. Your perspective matters. Our perspective matters. Love to hear that. Love to hear that. All right, Special Agent Green. Hey, I really appreciate you coming on to the to the show here. Thank you. Thank and, you, Dale. Uh, yes, yes. Be safe out there. All right, Make, brother, Making those too. executive Thank decisions. You. Making those executive decisions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, as my daughter says, not doing much. Yes. I'll be very safe. <laughs> All right. I'll talk to you. Thanks a lot. I appreciate you. All right. Thank you, Dale. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Yes, indeed. That's what I'm talking about. Another amazing interview for the Black and Blue Podcast. Let me thank DEA Detroit Special Agent in Charge, Orville Green, for spending some time with us on this episode. And I hope you guys got some value out of this conversation as well. If you did, go ahead and let me know by leaving a comment down below. Make sure you like and share this interview as well. I'll be back real soon with another dope interview just like this one. But uh, till then, come on, y'all. Stay black. In blue. <laughs> I'll let you. Deuces. This has been a Nature Day Entertainment presentation.